Welcome to our first episode of Law360's new podcast series, Approach the Bench, where each month we interview a judge about the work of judging and important issues facing the judiciary. I'm Kara Bayliss, a features reporter here at Law360, and for our first monthly episode, we're talking with Judge Esther Salas, a U.S. District Court judge for the District of New Jersey. Judge Esther Salas was already a trailblazer when she became the first Latina to ascend to the federal bench in New Jersey, and in more than a decade as a jurist, she has taken on a sprawling docket that includes everything from a drug cartel prosecution to a securities class action to a bank fraud case involving reality television stars. But in 2020, she became a household name after an unthinkable tragedy. Her home was attacked by an armed attorney, a self-avowed anti-feminist who'd had a case before Judge Salas challenging the male-only military draft. He critically wounded her husband, Mark, and fatally shot their only son, Daniel, who was 20 years old. Since then, Judge Salas has become a national figure advocating for improved judicial security. She spoke to us a few weeks after the three-year anniversary of the shooting. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. So, Judge, two weeks after a gunman shot your son and husband, you released a video calling for a solution that keeps the lives of federal judges private. Can you speak a little bit about that devastating event and how you got to the point where you could advocate for the safety of other judges? You know, uh, obviously the day that Daniel was murdered and Mark was almost murdered, thank God he's alive and well today, you know, my life, it felt like it imploded. And um, I honestly think about those days and I remember not really having much energy to do anything. I, I, I was admitted into the hospital uh, the, uh, the day of the shooting and pretty much was in a catatonic state. Um, and I know that um, for me, life ended uh, and a little piece of me was taken that day uh, when my son was taken. But thankfully, I'm a very faithful, spiritual person. And, and Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday after the shooting, I tell people that it felt like uh, a gentle nudge from above. And I remember the team of doctors coming in and uh, Mark wasn't doing well. And, and they wanted to tell me, um, you know, this, the situation and that they were going to need to operate again. And I remember that day um, just sitting up in my bed and asking for a pad, a paper, and a pen. And I remember looking at the doctor and saying, and your name is. And that was sort of when the switch went back on and, you know, inside of me. And um, I wanted to live. I don't think I wanted to live those days leading up to that Wednesday. But on Wednesday, the switch went back on and, you know, I got strong enough to be released from the hospital the Friday after the murder. And I was already thinking about like something needs to be done. And, um, and I said, of course, and I remember fighting with the marshals and fighting with people because I wanted to have a press conference, you know, and I wanted to like speak and they were like, you can't, it's COVID. You can't, we don't know if there's anyone else out there that wants to hurt you. We, we're not done with the investigation. I was, and I was pretty, I was at that point, um, I was a mama bear. Somebody had taken my cub, my only cub. And I needed to protect now others, but it was, um, it was definitely a long road 
to, 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 to that point. It felt like years, but we got there. And um, I was able to, to record that video, and it was actually the first take. Really? That's impressive. You know, I remember them saying, we're just going to turn the camera on. You know, don't, don't worry, just, just go ahead. And I've always had notes in front of me. That's the way I kind of look down and scan at something. And then, so I kept the notes in front of me. We weren't even using the, the, the teleprompter. And then uh, I, I remember getting ready that day to, to do that video. And what a lot of people don't know is the day I did that video, that YouTube video is the day I temporarily uh, did the internment for my son. I was literally wearing the suit that I wore to the mausoleum um, and I had to go to the hospital. And, you know, we, we shot that video in the hospital and then I went to go see Mark and I hadn't told Mark that we were, we were doing any of this because he was still fighting for his life. So I don't know where that strength came from. And I know it's divine. Uh, and I know that I have been blessed to have not only that support from, you know, above, but also from so many family members, friends and loved ones that just rallied around me during that time frame. It took quite a while for Congress to pass the legislation named after your son, the Daniel Anderl Judicial Security and Privacy Act. It passed just this past December. How did it change things on the ground for judges? Well, you know, a, a couple of things. First, let me say that I do want to compliment uh, the New Jersey legislature and, and Governor Murphy for passing the Daniels Law just four and a half months after uh, our brutal attack. And then, of course, it took Congress a, a bit to pass the Daniel Andrew Judicial Security and Privacy Act, and it actually passed on, on December 23rd, 2022, right before Christmas Things have dramatically changed for judges on, on many levels. I think symbolically um, to have Congress issue a law uh, that is aimed at protecting the judiciary is critical. And then um, there's other things that we have definitely seen. Obviously, a system of removing our personally identifiable information and a mechanism to do that now through the director of the administrative office. We have the vulnerability management program, which is going to look and monitor any potential threats that may be out there. We have, you know, the increase of the home intrusion detection systems, which many judges are taking advantage of now, and their homes are becoming more secure. And then, you know, we even have the hardening of, of courthouses that are more vulnerable across the nation. So I think we can see change and we can see improvement. Much remains to be done, in my humble opinion. I think you need something like the federal law along with a state law as a companion to that law. It only works if they're working together to seal that personally identifiable information. So much remains to be done uh, for democracy and for the safety of judicial officers at every level. And Mark and I intend on continuing to uh, rally and promote and encourage uh, that states follow New Jersey's lead and other states that have as well initiated laws uh, to protect the judiciary. Would those state laws, would they also protect uh, personal information or would they, what would they do differently from the federal law? So again, there's so many states and, and there are so many different laws, but I think it's important to sort of look at what the problem has been. It's critical for us to be offensive and not just defensive. In my case, the lawyer who killed my son, he 
really never issued an outright threat against me. He wrote some manifesto, which I never read. And in it, he wrote, he, he said some horrific sexist and, and racist things about me. Would that have caught the attention of, of law enforcement on its own back then? Probably not. So the, the issue of whether you criminalize the harassment or you criminalize, you know, the publishing of a judge's address and stuff, that's all I leave to states to decide. But what we really need to focus on is removing the very information that can be used as ammunition against us. In my case, that open source information, where I live, the church I attended, Daniel's schools, Mark's information, my routes to work, all the things that he used uh, to really create a dossier and to ultimately hunt me down. That's the information that we need to protect. Now, the federal government with the new law can get the information off the the federal databases. It can prohibit data brokers from reselling that information. But if the state, those individual states that don't have companion laws and legislation, if we don't have that, then state agency websites are just going to repopulate because most of that information can be found in tax records, DMV records, election records. All of that is readily accessible in some of these states. So no matter what the federal government does, if the state is still going to repopulate that information, then it's really never going to end. I know that there was some pushback against the bill from folks who worried that it would chill free speech and harm transparency, especially, you know, as there were these protests around uh, the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court, uh, and especially for journalists investigating public officials. So could you speak a little bit about what's your reaction to those concerns? First of all, I think that the Daniel Anderl Judicial Security and Privacy Law, it is carefully drafted, narrowly tailored to address this compelling government interest. And I do believe the federal law made very clear that there are exceptions for newsworthy stories, as well as for matters of public concern. I don't believe that my home address is a matter of public concern. I don't believe that my personal mobile number is a matter of public concern. Uh, and, and we do know now what will happen if our information is out there for all to see. Uh, in my case, Daniel's killer used that information and, and, and stalked my, and, and literally was outside my house Friday, Saturday, and Sunday until he actually rang the doorbell at five in the afternoon and took the life of my only child and almost took the life of my husband, Mark. But there, there, there are areas in the law uh, that we have determined we can encroach upon certain laws um, when it's in the public's best interest to do so. And I, I, I think of someone like Lawrence Tribe, uh, Professor Tribe. You know, he's a respected uh, constitutional scholar. He compared the Daniel Anderl law to a law protecting the identities and addresses of persons in a witness protection program or permitting individuals to sue to prevent publication of their personal medical data. So there are instances in which we say there are areas that can be shielded when there is a legitimate public interest to do so. And I think the safety and protection of judicial officers is of paramount importance to all of us. Because really, when we allow these types of attacks to go unchallenged, 
we are jeopardizing our democracy. We are jeopardizing our democracy and the rule of law and ultimately the Constitution when we allow judges to be targeted for one reason and one reason only, the rulings that we have, uh, we have decided in particular cases. It, it is necessary that we protect our judiciary, and this is a, a healthy compromise in my humble opinion. It's been just over three years, right, since since that tragedy occurred. Yeah, July nineteenth uh, was the third year anniversary, um, which is you know hard. Uh, July will always be hard. My my son, my son was born on July thirteenth, and he lost uh, his life at least on Earth on July nineteenth. So that week will always be you know a very difficult week for for Mark and for me and my family and. You know, I talked to people about the moments leading up to his death. We were in the basement cleaning up after his uh, birthday celebration, and he was just so calm and so serene. And we were just having an in-depth conversation, like we always would have. And um, his father interrupted us for a second and came downstairs. And I always tell people Dad was his bro, you know, his playmate, his, you know, the guy he tossed the ball around with. But mom, I was his confidant. And so when he was telling me about his weekend and sharing with me, you know, concerns that he had with, uh, over some friends that were fighting, um, you know, he, he wanted that time with me alone. And when Mark came down the stairs, um, he looked at dad, shot him a look and said, mom and I are talking. And that, that was, you know, that was code for, get out. <laughs> you gotta go. And my husband scurried up the stairs and, and Daniel was swinging a wiffle ball bat. And I remember him saying, um, his last words to me was, mom, keep talking to me. I love talking to you. And just as he said that, it was like, cue the doorbell. And he looked at me and his face changed from calm and serene to like anxious and concerned. And he said, who is that? And I said, before I could even tell him, Kara, don't worry, dad will get, I, I couldn't even get the words. He just bolted up those steps to meet his fate. And, you know, we don't know what he said, what exchange there was between him and the shooter, but we know that he fell with his arms in a cross position backwards, like he fell back because Mark was right behind him. And we suspect that the shooter attempted to walk into the foyer and my son blocked his, his entry. Uh, and, um, and he took one shot directly to the chest. And then, of course, the gun was turned on Mark. But I know my son was a hero. And, um, and I know that uh, he did what he had to do to protect his home and his parents. And for me, when we talk about what what I've learned and the perspective that I've gained from this entire thing is I've learned the value of, of human life. I've learned how important it is for us to treasure each moment that we have together, for us to be willing uh, to agree to disagree, for us to be willing to start listening to one another and, and, and talking to one another and being willing to accept differing views um, and compromise. All of that I've learned through the hardest lesson of all, which is to lose my only child and to lose him in such a way that um, will stay with me for the rest of my days on earth. I feel silly even asking this, but 
Do you think those lessons have changed how you conduct yourself in the courtroom? Absolutely. I I tell everybody um, that uh, I I always talk about my life pre-murder, post-murder. So pre-murder, you know, I think I was a a decent human being, Um, but I think I'm a better person post-murder. I've I've learned so much on this journey that I've been on. I've learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about uh, the need for me uh, to to judge, yes, but not be judgmental, which is a very big difference. Um, To be able to judge a case, look at the facts and the law, and make the best possible ruling I can without emotion, without any biases without any, you know, preconceived notions. And, and that's different. That's sort of being a neutral observer and, and, and looking at the facts and looking at the law and doing what I feel is necessary, whether I like it or not, I've got a job to do. Right. Um, and, but, but being judgmental, we don't have to be that. Uh, I think uh, I've learned to try to put judgment aside. Um, and I've learned to try to really be open and receptive to, to differing views. I may not always agree, but it doesn't mean that I have to get you to agree with me and my will is the will that will necessarily, you know, triumph. There's a whole different way of me living in my personal life. And there's a whole different way and a more honed, um, more deliberate, more objectively neutral kind of perspective that I've taken on as the role of, of, of a judge. And I think I always had it, but now I'm even more in tune to it. After the tragedy, you stopped working for a few months and then uh, you came back to the bench. And, and when you returned, New Jersey was mired in this caseload backlog. Courthouses had closed down at the height of the COVID pandemic, and there was this pileup that was exacerbated by the longstanding judicial vacancy crisis in New Jersey. Um, So I can imagine just coming back after what you'd endured was enough. But then with all that piled on top of it, what was it like to be dealing with that? You know, I think COVID uh, has really... um challenge judicial officers all across the country. And I'm talking at every level of government. There was definitely a backlog. I returned to work March 1st, uh, 2021. Um, and, um, you know, I, I took back my caseload, which by the way, I, I am so grateful and thankful to all of my judicial colleagues in the district of New Jersey who took on extra work because, you know, obviously I was out trying to um, you know, heal, but trying to help my husband who nearly lost his life three times. So we were doing the best that we could to, to, to survive. And my colleagues did their part to ensure that cases kept moving. My cases kept moving, their cases kept moving. In terms of what we've had to do, we'll do whatever we can to, to, to work on the backlog um, and to uh, work on uh, trying to get those cases tried and trying to do our part to get back to baseline, which was always challenging because we had judicial vacancies for the term of our past president. Uh, so we were already at a deficit uh, at, at the time before the pandemic hit. So you can only imagine we're down six judges. Now COVID hits, then I'm out. 
Uh, it's been quite challenging on the District of New Jersey and everywhere, quite frankly. But judicial officers are resilient, and we uh, are continuing to move our cases and continuing to work on that backlog. Um, challenging for sure, impossible now. We'll get there. We just need, obviously, the public's patience, and we we obviously uh, would ask that the attorneys uh, do their best to to understand that it's not that we don't want to get to their particular motions. It's that we're doing the best we can with what we've been um, given uh, in light of all of those extenuating circumstances. Speaking of COVID, I was struck by an order you wrote a few years ago in a proposed class action brought by businesses that had suffered a financial blow during the COVID pandemic. And you wrote that you were, and I'm quoting you here, sympathetic to plaintiff's circumstances and the fact that it had suffered enormous loss as a result of the pandemic, threatening not just plaintiff's livelihood, but the continued vibrance and success of our local communities. But you added that you couldn't rewrite the terms of an insurance policy agreement. I realize you can't comment on any particular case, but how often do you find that you might personally like to rule one way, but that you can't? Yeah, I mean, uh, this answer would be the same pre-murder as it is post-murder. There are things that, quite frankly, as human beings, we have, you know, we we tend to have because of our life's experiences, an opinion or a feeling about something. But I knew very, like, I knew from day one that I had to check my personal opinions uh, at the door. Um, I had to check any preferences that I may have with respect to an outcome, that's not available to us. Um, and I think that what is available to us, though, is to not check the people that we are. See, my mom raised me to believe that I'm not better than no one, but no one is better than me. And she always said that to me in Spanish. It was her mantra. And I really have been raised to have certain ways of treating people that I believe everyone should be treated the same. And, you know, it's the respect that you can give someone, no matter who they are, when they walk into that courtroom. It's your demeanor. It's your personality. That can stay with you uh, as you go onto the bench, but you can't you can't take any of the other stuff because you really do have to call the case as the law dictates. And I can tell you there have been so many opinions that, you know, it it hurt me to, to have to rule a certain way or the other because I was sympathetic or more compassionate uh, to to the, the, you know, the the issue that was before me. But I can't compromise uh, on what I know is this job's responsibility, and that is to, to be impartial to be neutral, to look at what the law says, and to apply it, um, and to apply it to the particular facts of, of the case before me, whether I like it or not. When you're doing that work, are there ways that attorneys make it more difficult? I mean, do you have any pet peeves? You know, uh, there are two major pet peeves that I have. Uh, the first has to be lack of civility to one another. We often see attorneys speaking disrespectfully to one another, either in the form of emails or even in the courtroom. You'd be amazed at some of the things that you see, the eye rolling, the looks and the, the you know, the ad hominem attacks. Uh, it just, it, it's, it's unnecessary. I personally think it takes away from your argument. Uh, it distracts the, the listener. Uh, that 
that's the jury or me, right? Uh, you want to be able to make your point and make your point without attacking the other side. And so that's my one of them. And the other one is lack of candor with the court. Uh, similar. Yeah, but I've seen a lot of attorneys, um, you know, characterize a ruling uh, that uh, wasn't exactly the ruling of the court, citing dicta and not letting it be clear that it's dicta um, or citing a dissenting opinion, um, playing fast and loose with, with what the law says and what you want it to say. And, you know, to me, obviously, we read everything, we look at everything, we pull all the cases, we read them. And so it's pretty clear as we start doing our own research that perhaps your characterization of the particular law is not accurate. Um, I think you do yourself a disservice, you do your clients a disservice when you, when you play with your reputation that way. And so for me, uh, I, I'm all about owning it owning, if you have a bad case, bring it out in the open. Tell me why you think your case can be distinguished from the law that, that otherwise doesn't help you. Uh, tell me that you think that the law is you know, set, but that you think it's time for us to consider an exception, right? Own the, the, the situation and then use it to your advantage and allow yourself the opportunity to maybe make new, new law. Those are the two pet peeves I have, and I continue, sadly, to, to see them, um, but not often. I have to tell you, I, I honestly enjoy seeing lawyers be lawyers and advocates. Um, it's, it's wonderful to see an attorney stand up and have such command of a courtroom and to be able to argue uh, the position and argue it effectively and convincingly without you know, using any other dirty tricks or any other kind of slights of the hand, if you will. So for me, when you see a good lawyer practicing, you're always impressed by uh, that lawyer. And you, you know, I think what we do in, in a courtroom is fascinating stuff. I wish, you know, more people could see it in the sense of having students come into courtrooms and, 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 you know, have constitutional law day and have, you know, have an exposure to the court system in a more positive way than what we normally hear about it in sort of, you know, the little burst on evening, on the evening news. So I, I think there's so many cool things that judicial officers do. Uh, and more often than not, the only thing that's publicized is our bat, our rulings that tend to be controversial, depending on what side of the aisle you sit on, right? Um, but there's so many things that judicial officers are doing all throughout this country, uh, presiding over drug courts, what we like to call recovery courts, right? Um, and naturalization ceremonies, uh, officiating a, 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 over a wedding, um, doing things that we do uh, day in and day out that don't often get a lot of attention, but I think are deserving of that attention in any event. There's a lot of things that we do that, that I would love people to know. Um, and I would love if we would be able to share with the community that we serve and uh, both the legal community and the community at large. Judge Salas, thank you so much for joining us. We're so sorry for your loss, and we really appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you for this opportunity, Kara, to speak to you and Law 360 today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be heard and to be uh, just 
talking about the issues that matter to us all. Thank you so much and have a great day. We'd like to thank our guest, Judge Esther Salas. Our episode was produced by Stephen Trader. Our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Law360's own Kelly Marcano. Thank you for listening. 